Amen. So I wonder if you are a little bit like I am in that when you go to the mailbox, you rifle through the envelopes of advertisements and Potomac Edison bills and things like that. And there is a envelope that's a little different shape, a little different color, and it has handwriting on it. Don't you like that? You have a handwritten note from somebody and you want to look right away at the return address and see who it is that's writing me. It made me think of um, uh, a couple things. One was I was thinking how, what are young people who are courting now, uh, dating, writing texts to one another? They won't have a shoebox filled with texts, will they? I mean, it was the summer of 1982, and I was up on the Yukon for my final summer, commercial salmon fishing, way out in nowhere, and we didn't get mail very often, and there was no such thing as cell phones yet then as far as the common man was concerned. And, and there, once in a while, when the pickup boat would come through, they would have some mail and drop off mail for us. And, oh, I was in love with Janet Parsons, I'll tell you, and... She was back here in Hedgesville and writing me letters regularly and sometimes a number of weeks would go by and so before we would get mail and so when I got my mail I might have four, five or six envelopes with her beautiful handwriting, different colors, different shapes. Boy, I would get those things and hold them until I had a chance to get off by myself and then I would order them according to the postmark date, and then I would sit there and carefully look at it, and then I would just savor, slowly open them and unfold it, and she would perfume the stationery, and I would smell it. I don't think you can smell a text message, can you? And I was thinking how precious it is to receive a letter from someone you love and who loves you. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1 this morning. It's our anniversary Sunday, and I wanted us to just do some thinking about who we are. And I want us, even at a greater level, to ask the question, what would Jesus say to us if he were to write us a letter? Or what would Jesus say if he were to walk among us? What would his evaluation be? What would his comments be? What would his remarks be? And in Revelation chapter 1, what's special about it is this most fascinating book in our Bible that we relate mostly to the end times events and, and the closing of the affairs of the world as we know it and the, the great tribulation period, the millennial kingdom of Christ, the return of Christ in all of his power and authority. But this book starts out with some love letters it starts out with some very specific letters to churches. And I want us to just evaluate one of these letters today. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus. And that's found in the beginning of chapter 2 of Revelation. If you have notes nearby, it might be helpful to you to follow along. If not, it does not offend me. If you don't enjoy filling in the blanks, that's fine. But do pay close attention to your copy of God's Word this morning. And, and let's remind ourselves of what's happening here. Uh, this was written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it is called the Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revealing of, of Christ in all of His glory, really. You'll recall that in this first century, it was a time of difficulty for the churches. He's writing to 
to some specific churches here as he opens up. John is going to have a vision and Christ is going to speak to him. In fact, let's just read it. It begins in verse 9 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. John gives his account of what happened. He said, I, John, your brother and your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A couple things real quick out of that verse before we read on. Notice that he immediately talks about being a partner in their tribulation. So as he writes to the churches that will read his revelation that's given to him by Christ, he's laying a groundwork. This is a preface that he writes after he's had the revelation. He's now packaging it up for it to be presented to the churches. And he's telling them how he got this word. And he, he reminds them that he knows, and he's in the fellowship of their sufferings, he knows that these are difficult days for the church. The church is being persecuted. This is the days of being fed to lions. This is the days of the scattering of the church, of the churches and believers. He also reminds them that He is writing this from the Isle of Patmos, which is little more than a pile of rocks out into the Mediterranean. And it was a place used to isolate prisoners. And there they were uh, abandoned and, and, and dropped off. And there they sustained themselves with meagerness. And they were in isolation and punishment on this island, he calls it, of Patmos. Let's read what happens. Verse 10, he says... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he was evidently filled with the Spirit in a special way. He was worshiping. And he said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And here they are. Send it to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white and like wool and like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And you think to yourself as you write, I need to just lie down on my face on the floor right now in front of this description. What a Lord Jesus we have. And that's what John did. He said, when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Imagine that. And he said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we're helped out by Christ himself as he explains to John and John writes down what's happening in this vision. He sees this mighty one, this living one, who's clearly the Lord Jesus in all of his authority and all of his power and all of his greatness. And he sees these stars in his right hand and he sees these candle stands, these candlesticks. 
He wants to know what's going on. And, and our Lord says to him, the stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Well, what is that? The word angel here means messenger. The one who speaks. The idea would be many Bible interpreters agree that what he's talking about are the pastors, the spiritual leaders of those churches who speak the word of God. And the lampstand themselves are the churches. And it's as though the Lord Jesus in all of his greatness is walking through the lampstand, these seven churches, and he named these seven cities. Now, these seven communities are on a, on a highway, on a, on a road. Think now in terms of the reality in this first century that this is, um, this is a part of Asia that we would know as Turkey today. And it's southern Turkey, and if you would land uh, out of a ship there and go inland a little ways on the main road, you would come first to Ephesus. It was a great city. It was a pagan city. It was there that 40-some years before, the Apostle Paul had helped plant a church. When we read our New Testament epistle to the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, or we know it as the book of Ephesians, That was written 40 years before John is on Patmos and receives this vision about these churches. But it's the same Ephesus. So 40 years have gone by. The church is now being persecuted. Rome has these colonies. Rome rules the world. Many uh, historians believe that that was a mail route and it was a highway that went in a big circle. And along the way and in order were the cities that were listed back in verse 11. Ephesus is the first city that you come to. Ephesus is the only letter we're going to look at this morning. We want to look at this letter as though it were a personal letter to us. We're going to read someone else's mail. And the letter, remember, is written by somebody who loves the church. It's a love letter written to a church that Jesus loves. John is the scribe. Jesus is the author. Ephesus is the receptor of the letter. So we're going to open someone's mail in a way, and we're going to look and we're going to read and we want to learn. I've often wondered, what would Jesus say if he were walking in our halls? And you might say, well, Pastor Van, he would say it's really crowded in these halls. But what would he say if he could look into our hearts, look into our homes as a church corporately? What would Jesus say to us? Forty years have gone by. Sometimes churches change in 40 years. Let your eyes go to the screen picture this morning, the title screen. It's really kind of a beautiful picture in a way, but it's a sad picture, isn't it? Picture of an old clapboard country church that was painted white and now ivy and vines grow around it and weeds and the paint has peeled and it's pretty evident that there are no services in this church anymore. Picture represents, doesn't it, a church that that used to be something that it's not today. It used to be something, but... No more. And I wonder if today as we read the letter to the Ephesian believers and we read their mail as though it were written to us, what can we learn? What can we be reminded of on our anniversary Sunday that we must remember that God would continue to work in us and that by His grace there will never be a day when there's a sign out front of this facilities that say floor covering discount warehouse or mattress warehouse. That God would have His good hand of blessing upon us and continue to keep that hand upon us. Let's read the letter now. It's chapter 2. Let's read it, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Words of commendation so far, words that we would love to hear the Lord Jesus say to us. But there it is, that three-letter interruptive word. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned, you have forsaken, you have left the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And there's the letter to the Ephesians from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. If you have your notes nearby, let's just break this letter down and let's, as I say, read someone else's mail, but let's apply it to our church. Let's apply what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus to our church. The first thing we see is that we must, we must live with a constant awareness of the presence of Christ. Notice what he says as he opens the letter to the angel or the messenger, those who are the speakers of the church in Ephesus, write, I write this to you. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a, that's a picture of his presence. That means that Jesus is among the churches and the church. That Christ is with us. That Jesus is present with us is something that we must always live with great mindfulness. Live with a constant awareness of the presence of Christ. Let's apply his presence for a moment, just quickly. Let's just remind ourselves of, of what the presence of Christ should do for us. First of all, let's remind ourselves that it should bring comfort. It should bring comfort. I mean, the word picture that comes to my mind is from John's Gospel, chapter 14, that well-known passage where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. So quiet down, disciples. They were stirred up and they were uncertain and they were afraid. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So in my father's house, King James says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. What's he doing? He's reminding them that, that I won't leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you for all of eternity. He will remind them in John 17 that He will send another Comforter, the Holy Spirit, in His absence. The Holy Spirit will come in comfort. But Christ is the comfort of the church, isn't He? We can find great comfort in the presence of Christ among us. That mysterious way that He indwells the believer. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwells us, but the Scriptures are clear that Christ is in us, Paul taught us. In some mysterious way, as we gather corporately, Christ is present with us. This is His church. He's here. He walks among us. Secondly, I want you to see that we are encouraged. We find courage and strength. We find courage from the presence of Christ. The word picture here is that familiar passage in Mark's Gospel in chapter 4 where he's asleep in the boat and the storm comes. The disciples are frightened. They think they're going to drown. They shake him awake. He calls out to the storm for it to be peaceful. He calms the water, calms the storm, turns to them, 
And he scolds them. And what does he say? He said, you have little faith. Be, where's your courage? Where's your faith? I'm here with you. You can have freedom from fear because I am with you. You can have courage. Thirdly, it brings conviction, doesn't it? It brings conviction. The presence of Christ brings conviction. And that's the kind of presence that we're talking about in the letter to Ephesus here. That His presence will convict us. The word picture from Scripture that I thought of was in Luke's account of our Lord on the night that He was betrayed and He had been beaten and He was going to be taken to the cross. And He had told Peter earlier with the disciples in that three times that night, when Peter swore that he would never betray his Lord, three times, Peter, Jesus told Peter three times tonight, you'll, be, you'll betray me, and then the rooster, the cock will crow. And in Luke's account, it's one of the most emotional passages in all of the Bible, I think. There is Jesus, beaten, battered, abused, bound. And the third time the rooster crows, Jesus looks up, Luke tells us, and he looks down a corridor... And there Peter stood looking down at his Lord and their eyes met. And it says that Peter wept and he ran away. He had betrayed his Lord. The conviction was overwhelming. And so the presence of Christ, yes, it comforts us. Yes, it brings courage, but it should convict the church as well. The fact that we're being watched by our Lord. Secondly, I want to remind us from the letter to the Ephesian believers that we must never become passive in our commitment to the purity of Christ's church. We must never become passive in our commitment to the purity of Christ's church. Let's read on. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. We'll come back to that in a moment. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. The church at Ephesus stands as an example to us as those who would stand against sin. Now let it be known that sinners everywhere are welcome in this church. Sinners everywhere are welcome in this church. And we'll point you to the cross. And once you've been to the cross and you've dealt with your sin and the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin, you're born again, you're a new, new creation in Christ, then if you sin, we'll be after you. Oh, it'll be in love and grace and it'll be restorative but the grace of God that brings salvation, not only does it bring salvation, but it teaches us this grace of God that brings salvation, teaches us, Titus said, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright in this present age. God wants His churches to be pure and clean from evil and Ephesus watched out for the evil and separated from evil. And so they took a stand against sin. Notice what else they took a stand against. He said... You have also tested, in the middle of verse 2, you have also tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Later in verse 6, he's going to, after he scolds them in verse 4 and, and 5, 4 and 5, in verse 6, he's going to come right back and say, but, but you also hate the Nicolaitans, and I hate the Nicolaitans too. That's a good thing. To hate the things that God hates is a good hate. And Ephesus evidently was a strong church, aware of the presence of Christ. He walked among them. They were very concerned, and they were not passive. 
in their commitment to the purity of Christ's church. They stood against sin and they stood against false teaching. They stood against false teaching. And so we stand against false teaching. You might ask, well, what are those Nicolaitans? That's a weird word. What is that? Well, I made a little statement in our notes there. Really, Bible students have not been able to discern exactly who the Nicolaitans are. Some Bible commentaries point out that, and you'll recall, some of you know your Bible a little bit, in Acts chapter 6, do you remember when the apostles and the spiritual leaders in the church at Jerusalem were overwhelmed by the ministry there, and they were having a, there was an, a dispute that came up between the, the, uh, the widows, the Grecian and the Judea widows, and there was favoritism going on and the apostles and the spiritual leaders were, they were busy feeding the people and, and, and taking care of their physical needs. And so they decided to call together some spiritual men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and appoint them to be deacons so that they could take care of the widow's needs. And then they could apply themselves full time to the study and preaching and teaching of God's word and to prayer in Acts chapter six, where one of those deacons is named Nicholas. And some Bible students believe that that Nicholas was influential in the church and that somewhere along the line, uh, he turned away from the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and somehow he uh, corrupted the teaching in the church or at least people who were followers of Nicholas or disciples of Nicholas turned away. We don't know for sure. What we do think is though no one looks look at my statement, though no one knows for sure who this was, it was an identifiable heresy and false teaching present in the early church. It seems to be linked in chapter 2 of Revelation here, when we write the letter, when Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum, it's linked there, it seems like in verses 14 and 15, with the teachings of Balaam, which involved idolatry and sexual immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality. I've wondered if this Nicolaitan teaching wasn't a teaching that we have experienced in the last century in our churches, in America particularly, where there is an an out-of-balance emphasis on grace. And you say, well, Pastor Van, how could you have too much grace? You can have too much grace when you don't understand grace and when you teach it like it was taught in Corinth, where Paul had to address them strongly And he said they were so proud of the grace that they had in their church that they ignored sin, that they let sin go. They they called bad good. And, and, And they did it in the name of grace. And maybe that's what was going on here to the degree that that it had become so skewed that there was an idolatrous, adulterous element to some teaching that was present as a heresy in the church at Ephesus and in the city of Ephesus, which, by the way, was a very pagan city of ritualistic uh, sex-based worship. Um, And and it was um, a a thriving metropolis, but it was a wicked city. And there Christ's church had taken root. And 40 years before, Paul had written the Ephesian believers. And here, Jesus addresses them 40 years later. And he still is able to commend them for the strong stand you have against sin and the strong oversight you take of, for doctrinal purity. That's good for a church, isn't it? There's another good quality that he points out to in his letter to the Ephesian believers, and it is that they did not grow weary in their perseverance for Christ. Remember, the church was under attack. Remember that 
Christians were being persecuted, and it was a difficult time. So notice what he says at the beginning now of verse 2. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And he says later in verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That's a good quality for a church, isn't it? You have not grown weary. You have endured for my namesake. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Well, I think Fellowship Bible Church gets a pretty good mark here. I know, I know a room full of people that aren't too worried about being called Christians this morning. Now we have a life of ease. I wonder what would happen if we began to be persecuted But I like to think that many, many would stand for Christ and endure patiently. And we want to stand like the Ephesian believers and never grow weary in our perseverance for Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Remember, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And remember, that verse was based upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, and he said, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not falter, give up, or faint. Don't grow weary, church. The Ephesian church was commended by Jesus in his letter to them for their perseverance, for their endurance, for their patience. Well, we want to live, don't we, at Fellowship Bible Church with a constant awareness of the presence of Christ. We want to never become passive in our commitment to the purity of Christ's church here. We want to never grow weary in our perseverance for Christ. But notice, he stops the commendation and he moves to correction and condemnation. Remember, therefore, verse, excuse me, verse 4, but I have this against you that you have forsaken, you have abandoned, you have left the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I think that removing of the lampstand is the idea of the picture on our screen this morning. I will remove my hand of blessing and you will become nothing. My presence will be gone. There will not be an effective voice for the gospel. He gives them, notice, uh, it's not in your notes, but notice he gives them a formula for recovery. He said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to remember. And then I want you to repent and do what you did at first. That's the return part. Remember, remember how you were when you fell in love. It, it, put, a, it put a spot in my mind. Turn your attention to the screens. Notice this spot. It's a, a well-known spot in the state of West Virginia. If you've ever been down by Fayetteville, West Virginia, it's the New River Gorge Bridge. It is a phenomenal structure and a work of architecture and engineering. If you go to the visitor center and get out of your car and walk down the wooden steps, you can look down on the river and you'll see the low bridge there, the old original bridge that you used to have to drive on a narrow winding road to cross the river. That's why they put the big bridge there. I was a rafting guide for a couple of summers there in the early 80s, and I knew the area well. And on April 15th, 1983, I 
had Janet's hand on a cold, windy day, and we kind of snuggled against each other as we walked out of our car. We were all alone. The water was high. It was April. Nobody was around. And we walked out onto that low bridge. Out in the middle of that bridge, she slipped my diamond on her hand. What a moment. What a moment. Janet Parsons loves me and is willing to be my wife. Do you remember those moments in your relationship? I mean, I think we have to kind of equate here. He says, you have left your first love. It's romance talk, isn't it? It's, it's the idea of a relationship that was once so deep and strong that has now cooled off. And I think about that moment and the love and the passion and the desire to be together. And, and then 30 years later, I walk in my kitchen and my wife looks at me with a sad face and she says, do you think you could write me into your calendar and pretend that I go to your church so that you would talk to me? What is that? What is that? That's, that's love that cools, right? That's, that's love that what? That has become too busy or too tired or too distracted. You fill in your own twos there. What is it that you're too much of that... Hey, the church at Ephesus did a lot of things right, didn't they? I mean, they, they took a strong stand on the Word of God. They, they marked out false teaching and false apostles. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus is walking among them and He says, Do you think you could just spend some time with me? You're busy. You're busy and you're doing a lot of things well. What about the relationship? He speaks to the heart and so he says, here's what I want you to do. Verse 5, I want you to remember, remember, remember when we fell in love. It wasn't a bridge at the New River where we fell in love with Jesus. That was at the foot of a cross where we fell in love with Jesus. Remember, repent of the things that you've allowed to come into your life to distract you and harden your heart and, and callous your sensitivity towards your loved one. Maybe even falling in love with things that you shouldn't fall in love with that have replaced Jesus. Repent of that and then return. Return back to the beginning. And so in conclusion, we remind ourselves that to stay in love with Jesus, one of the things we must do regularly is we must never forget what we were before Christ. If you can remember what your life was like before Christ... And when you went to the cross and there you saw Christ in a whole new way and His blood cleansed you from all sin and He redeemed you out of the slave market of sin. And there His propitiation was complete, His atoning sacrifice. He satisfied the demands of a holy God for sinners. And He substituted into our place. Remember what you were before that. And then what you were at the cross. And if you're like me, and all you can remember is being at Christ and accepted Christ at age five, then maybe what you need to do is number two, you must understand what life would be like without Christ. I mean, I equate this to the marriage relationship as well. I think of my life before Janet. It was pretty pathetic. And now I think of my life with her. And then number three, we must long to spend the rest of our lives together with Christ. What was I before Christ? What, am I, what would I be without Christ right now? And the joy of thinking that I get to spend all of eternity. We talk like that sometimes, don't we? 
maybe on an anniversary getaway, maybe just in the kitchen. I'm so glad I get to spend all of the rest of my life with you. And so it is, we long for Christ to be the center and to be in love with Christ. That He would be our joy. That He would be our passion. Maybe we check out well and we do a lot of things. He said, but if you don't return in love for me, I will remove your candlestick. That means He will shut us down. But those who will overcome conquerors, 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, tell us clearly that all believers in the Lord Christ will be overcomers. And then you'll eat from that tree of life forever and ever with Christ. Should be the longing of our hearts, huh? It's about relationship, isn't it? It's about relationship more than it is responsibility and duty. And that is so hard for us. The church at Ephesus struggled with it as well. I trust it's been profitable to read someone else's mail today. I thought then it would be very appropriate for us now at this time to, to just really focus on Christ and, and to take the bread that reminds us of His broken body and to take the cup of His shed blood on our behalf. And maybe we need to repent. We certainly need to remember. Some of us need to repent, maybe all of us. And we need to return to where we once were. Remember how far you've fallen. Repent of the things that have come before you in Christ. And return to the things that you once did. To fall in love again with Jesus on our 27th anniversary. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes? Pure church, strong church, an enduring church. The greatest thing that could be said about Fellowship Bible Church is that those people love Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And so, Father, would you make our hearts tender in this moment? And as we receive the bread, and as we partake of the cup, help us to remember what a wonderful Lord Jesus we have and that he's here present with us. And that that would bring great conviction to us. Accomplish your purposes in us now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Let's stay bowed before the Lord as we receive the bread.
Our Lord is the one who gave us this symbol, this symbol of broken unleavened bread. He did it there at the last Passover on the night that he was betrayed before he went to the cross. He did it with his disciples in the upper room. He did it as a reminder to us through them that believers everywhere would through the centuries then take bread and break it and be reminded of the broken body of their Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross for them. Communion is open to all believers in Christ here at Fellowship Bible Church. You need not be a member of this church, just a member of the body of Christ. Our Lord took the bread. It was on the night that he was betrayed, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. And that after he had given thanks, then he broke the bread and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. Let's pray. Father, we 
do indeed thank you for the wonderful grace of Jesus. That grace that is broader than the scope of all our transgressions. That purchases peace and power for us. Thank you for your love and your kindness and your faithfulness to us even when we are faithless. Father, would you do a work in us today on our anniversary Sunday that we would renew our love for Christ and that he would be the center of this church today and always. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Thank you for our great salvation, though so undeserved. Continue to do your work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Lord took the cup on the same night that he had taken the bread. He, he said, then Paul said that he took the cup and in the same way took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul instructed the Corinthian believers then that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's say together as a church, with this cup, we remember Christ. With this cup, we remember Christ. Let us partake together. Will you stand with me? I thought it would be good for us to sing a hymn before we go home. And let's remind ourselves of the grace of our Lord Jesus that's at work in us and through this ministry. Grace alone. Let's sing together before we leave. Every promise we can make, every prayer and step of faith, only by His grace. Every mountain we will climb, every ray of hope we shine, every blessing left behind is only by His grace. God supplies strength unknown he will provide Christ in us our cornerstone we will go forth in grace alone every soul Turn to 
praise is only by His grace. Grace alone, which God supplies, strength unknown, He will provide. Christ in us, our cornerstone, we will go forth in grace alone. Grace alone, which God supplies, strength unknown, He will provide. Christ in us, cornerstone. May God bless Fellowship Bible Church. Amen. Well, please come back at 4 o'clock to the Picnic Pavilion for a good evening. Baked potatoes, chili, hay rides, just a great family night together. Come with your heart prepared to share a testimony uh, as we gather for a short gathering this evening towards dark as well. Trust you can come. I think the sign-ups are still on the counter across from the missionary map if you want to bring any help bring food tonight. God bless you as you go. We do need to stack the chairs. Thank you for your good attention today.